We are in Colossians 3, and we're going to spend um, the next few weeks in this passage, kind of, um, well, taking it apart and uh, putting it together and all that fun stuff. Um, we're in verses 5 through 11 this morning, so. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. And in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures which you have given us by the Spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son. I ask that you would make it profitable for us this morning, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. And so use it this morning to make us mature equipping us for good works as we study the Scriptures this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I know that some of you weren't converted, sort of like I was converted, you know, a little bit later in life, and uh, and therefore with a deep sense of the guilt that um, brought me to that place. And so initially, you know, after my conversion, there's that great sense of relief. The guilt is gone. And um, life was different. And you sort of, you know, for those of you who convert later, usually there's like, I don't know, I don't want to say walking on air. But life is certainly different. And, it, and it's as if you're, uh, you, you have, not blinders on, but rose-colored glasses. It all looks good. But eventually the spiritual high sort of wears off and you realize, oh, man, I Still sin. What next? Some of you, you grew up in the church. You, you in a sense, you don't even, maybe, perhaps don't even remember when you became a Christian. But you, at some point, come to realize, and someone may have pointed this out to you: you still sin. So the question is, what next? How are we supposed to? to deal with this in addition to confessing this sin to God, what are you supposed to do about the practice of sin in our lives? Are we supposed to be vigilant and very active? Or, or, or is it that we're supposed to be very passive and not do much of anything or something in between? Well, Paul begins to get into that today. We're going to be looking at this for the next few weeks. And he's going to lay out how the Colossian Christians were supposed to deal with their sin because apparently they hadn't been. They were struggling in ways that we often struggle ourselves. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus wants to kill the sins in your life. So let us uh, take heed this morning. 
I'm structuring this around two commands and then one statement of fact that kind of point out the different pictures that Paul is going to give them as to what it means to be sanctified, to become more and more like Christ, to put sin to death more and more, and to live more and more to righteousness. So there's going to be three kinds of pictures of this, and two of them are very similar. First off, dead to sin, statement of fact, put sins to death by the Spirit. In other words, because you are already dead in sin, you are to put sins, particular acts, to death by the Spirit. Paul, up to this point, may have sounded weak on sin. Remember, he says, you're not to have anything to do with asceticism. You're not not to be treating the body harshly. You're not to be following these rules and regulations that these false teachers have brought to you here. You're not to be following the ceremonial law. You're not to be engaging in these rituals that somehow offer the promise of a, a higher Christian experience. And so initially, he might sound like he's soft on sin, like he doesn't want to deal with it. Like, he has no real answer. Well, you know, you're forgiven. So, because you're forgiven, it doesn't matter. It almost sounds like that until we get here. And now Paul begins to lay out more of how we are to respond to the reality of the fact that we do sin and that we do experience temptation. And so he says, put to death whatever is earthly in you. And so he actually has a very radical approach to sin. Now, he says, put to death therefore, which means in light of everything I've just said, you're to do this. It's, there's a, a theological foundation that we have to keep in mind as we approach this command. And we, so in order that we actually do this in light of the fact of our death to sin that we've talked about, in light of the resurrection with Christ that we have talked about, in light of our future glory in Christ that Paul has just talked about, in light of these things, these gospel grace things that we we did not deserve but we receive in Christ himself, Paul says, because of these truths, therefore put to death whatever is earthly in your members. There's an untranslated word in the Greek that uh, the ESV doesn't put in there, and that is members. In other words, picking up from Romans 6, Paul says there in verse 13 and following, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And the reason he says this, I'm going to go back to that in Romans 6, is that they had done that. That was their entire pre-Christian experience, giving their members of their body over to unrighteousness as instruments of unrighteousness. And the Colossian Christians had done the very same thing. And they were still attracted to that sin. Because of the power of indwelling sin, that reality that Paul talks about in other places, the sarks or the flesh, the sinful nature, whatever you want to translate that. One author that I was reading in a book, this, I think it was this week or the week before, talked about it, interestingly enough, as, 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 the, as antenna. And, you know, 
tuned in to particular signals. Each of us, as we've talked about before, will have um, certain sins that we're tuned into. Sins that we participated in in the past, that we have a particular weakness for now. And so when there's temptation out there, that, that's the particular signal that we're prone to pick up on. You know, the, the radio dial. Okay, Not all of the sins that are out there, but particular ones that fit the range of our personal weakness. That is exactly what they were doing. There were, they were ways in which they had not put all of their sins to death. Why is that so important? I think part of it has to do with what he had just talked about, their future glory in Christ. Okay? And the reality is, is that sin does not bring us glory. Sin brings us shame. Okay? We, we are so different from the unbelievers around us who can often boast about their wickedness. Think about this for a moment. Have you ever heard a Christian man boast about his use of pornography. To kind of come into a small group and say, hey, guess what I did last night, guys? You don't hear that. You hear the shame. I I can't believe I did that. And yet, if you go to a college campus today and you, you you kind of listen in, you will hear boasting about those things. And so non-Christian people often will boast about their particular sins as if these are great things. And we see a culture that really, particularly in the area of sexual sin, which is one of the main parts of this first sin list that Paul brings up, and we'll talk about that next week. But they're sort of like glorying in this. And what Paul is basically saying in context is, that's to your shame if you participate in that. That's not a good thing. That's not anything to boast about, to write home about mom, you know, to mom. Hey, mom, guess what I did this weekend? Shame. Sadness. Precisely because, as he says, it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Okay? God's anger... God's judgment is going to break loose upon the world at some point, particularly on account of these sins that people commit. And so we have to do, a, this, this verse calls us to do a couple things. One is to recognize the sinfulness of sin. To recognize the deadly, dangerous nature of sin. That just because Christ has died for our sin does not mean that It's still not bad for us. What this verse, I think, also teaches us is that Jesus has not taken away God's wrath for everybody because there is still a wrath that says right there to come, not just in general, but against sin, these sins. An idea that Christ died for his people. He didn't die to remove everybody's guilt. There's still is guilt and wrath to come on account of sins. John Flavel has commented, it is easier 
to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own. Paul's point here, it's easy for us to lose it, he's not so concerned about the sins that the unbelievers in Colossae are committing, he's concerned about the sins that the Christians in Colossae are committing. I'm not worried so much about what people in your neighborhoods are doing, I'm worried about what you and I are doing. And the fact that it's, it's, I mean, so many pastors do this. All they do is talk about, they rail about unbelievers. Well, Paul was more concerned about the Christians and dealing with our sin, that we have to put them to death. Don't be distracted by thinking in self-righteousness, well, you know, I've got my act together. Paul would say, no, there's still sin in you that needs to be put to death. There's still work to be done in your heart, in your mind. We read from Leviticus 18 this morning, and you know he warns them, don't be like the Egyptians who you just left. And don't be like the Canaanites where you're going to go. They're different, the Egyptians and Canaanites. I mean, they had different sins that dominated their culture, but the Israelites were to be like neither of them. They were to be like their God. And so we are not to be like the, the, to reflect the sinful patterns of the places where we live and have lived. But we are to reflect who God is. And so that means certain things need to die. And Jesus is busy killing them in you. Instead of putting their minds on things above, these Christians in Colossae were often thinking about how to satisfy their desires for things below. In other words, they had forgotten, as we're going to see in a little bit, that the first man that they have put off is from the earth, but the man that they have put on is from heaven. And so their thoughts should reflect what they've put off and put on. They're thinking about worldly things and how to satisfy those desires. But what does it mean to put to death? I mean, it's not like a jackrabbit that you're hunting. It's not like a rattlesnake that's in your backyard. I mean, you can't pull out a gun and shoot your sin. You, you, you can't pull out a knife or a, or a hoe and whack it to death. It's not like you can strangle it, hit it with a rock, or do anything else you might think of to put something to death, right? We're not to think about it in such a uh, carnal or material fashion, but to put them to death is, in a sense, to renounce them to starve them, to, to say, I may feel this temptation at this moment, but by the grace of God, I'm not going to say yes to it, and I'm going to say no to it, which is what Paul talks about to Titus, chapter 2. The grace of God teaches us to say no or to renounce ungodliness. He, that's the same thing as putting it to death. As, as John Owen talks about, to starve it. By neglect. You know, when we, when we act on a temptation, we feed it so that we are more prone to do it again or feel that temptation again. It's sort of like, you know, feeding the dog. Dog continues to grow, okay? But it's a mean dog. It's a dog you don't want, okay? 
we've got to starve it. And the only way to starve it is to stop feeding it. And the only way to stop feeding it is to stop participating in what it calls you to do. We are to reject the temptations that we experience. That is the only way. That's what it means to put them to death. But this capacity comes from the new life that we have in the Spirit. It's not something that we have in and of ourselves. It is something that is given to us, and in fact, that the Spirit teaches us how to do this. Paul, in Romans 8, reminds them in a parallel passage, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You're going to reap what you sow, as he says in Galatians um, as well. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so what we see is, I'm active. We are active. We are actively putting these things to death, but the only reason we're able to put them to death is because we're able to do it by the Spirit. And so we and God are working together to do this sanctification thing. It's not as though God does it all or I do it all. Both of us have got to be fully vested in this endeavor. And God is. Jesus died on the cross for this. Okay? He's, he doesn't want to just, he didn't just die for your sins. He wants to put your sins to death. He's fully invested. So there's, Paul is basically calling them to be all in, to be fully vested in this. And sometimes when we think of spiritual warfare, uh, you know, we're, we're, we think of the Frank Peretti books, perhaps. But the reality is that most spiritual warfare is about putting sin to death in thought, in word, and in deed. And sometimes you have to you start at the worst spot. Okay, You're, if there's a battlefield. You go where the enemy is, you know, where the, the enemy is most pressing, and you start to put to death the sins that you have indeed. You know, not committing those things. And, and, you know, as, as those are being put to death and they have less and less power in your life, you, you start working on the, you know, perhaps the, the words. And as those have less and less power in your life, you're, you're starting to deal with the internal reality of sin, the thoughts the desires, and putting those to death. And so what often happens is, at least this is what's supposed to happen. At the end of his ministry, Paul said, Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, if you were to look at Paul, you wouldn't think that about Paul. You'd say, there's a godly guy. That's because the external manifestations of sin... Deeds, words, were not completely absent, but largely absent from his life. You would say he's a godly man. But Paul still knew about the sinful thoughts and desires in his heart. And so what ought to be taking place as we make progress in sanctification is that we're, we're committing less visible sin and we're dealing with more of the sin no one sees. Okay, that no one would know about unless you told them. Okay, that's what's supposed to be happening. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is similar to this. 
Because he says, be ruthless. He's using hyperbole when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If, if he was being literal about this, then I imagine that we would have a congregation filled with um, blind, handless eunuchs. Or at least with the men. Okay. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying, be ruthless with your sin. Don't coddle it. Don't try to manage it. Don't try to domesticate it. See it for what it is, a deadly enemy that seeks to kill you and kill it first. As John Owen has famously said, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. Be ruthless with our sin. And so Jesus is killing your sins so that your sins won't kill you. Will you join him? Secondly, dead to the old man, take off what belongs to him. Paul here uses a parallel expression with a new list of sins to give us a different picture of what it means to put sin to death, to deal with the sin in our lives. Paul says that they used to walk in these various sins, and he's talking specifically there about um, the sexual sin and the covetousness and idolatry that they had participated in. But then he moves into other sins when he says uh, to them, you must put them all away. Now, that put them away, that's the same word that we saw back in Colossians 2, when it talks about Jesus disarming or stripping the powers. It's that, so it has that idea of, of getting rid of something, of <coughs> um, ripping and divesting of authority and power is, is kind of part of the idea that is going on here. This is a command. You must do this. It's like ripping off a set of clothes because you don't want to put them back on again. Okay? It's because you realize that they're filthy. They're contaminated. You know, if, if you've, uh, you know, I'm sure some of you have watched Dirty Jobs with uh, Mike Rowe. Yeah. See, I knew a youth pastor named Mike Rowe. So, um, <clears throat> You know, some of those, you're, what you're wearing just gets so utterly filthy, you don't want to bring them home and say, hey, Aim, can you launder these for me? It's like, you know, you take them off in the garage with the door down because you're going to throw them in the trash. That's the idea Paul wants to get across to them. That the practices that are associated with your past life are so dirty that you just want to rip them off. It's like clothes and throw them away. You don't want to keep them. Wear them next time. You know, I wore my panting, my, not my panting, my painting clothes yesterday because we, we, I was panting because you know, it was a little hot in that room after a while. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and they're filthy. And the only reason I would wear them is because I have more painting to do. Sadly. Um, so they haven't gone in the trash yet because we've got more rooms to paint in our house. And one of these days when it gets to the big thing, we're going to call Frank. Okay? I'm not painting all of the common areas. There ain't no way. Um, but that's besides the point. 
Okay, they're, they're filthy. You want to get rid of them. And the, the precise reason we want to get rid of them, he says, is that you have put off the old self. It's past tense. It's an indicative. It's something they have done. It's a statement of fact. Okay? He's pointing them back to something that took place. Okay? He's referring to what we talked about in um, chapter 2 with what happened in their baptism, what happened in their conversion, that they put off the old flesh. They've put off the old man, their old identity in Adam. They have renounced its practices as sin. This, that is the foundation upon which they now begin to put away, get rid of the sins associated with it. Are you catching that? He's saying you've already renounced the old man. Now stop living like the old man. Because there were certain ways in which you still are. So there was an inconsistency between their identity and their practice. And what Paul is saying is you need to bring your practice back into conformity, or actually back into, for the first time, with your identity. It worked okay when your identity was still the old man. I mean, hey, what do you expect non-Christians to act like? You know, you expect them to lie, you expect them to steal, you expect them to cheat, you expect all of these things. But a Christian because he's made to reflect the glory and righteousness of God, is not to act like that. And so when we do, we're we're being inconsistent with our new identity. So he says, put that away, precisely because you have already put off this old self. As I mentioned, I, I quoted this, but I didn't follow through. It's from 1 Corinthians, verse 47. The first man, Adam, was from the earth of the dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. I think those are very different. And the lifestyles associated with them are very different. And so we are to put off that which is associated, the earthly things, as Paul said earlier in this text. We're to put those to death. We're to take them off. Because we now we are part of the new man, the heavenly man that is Christ. And so these sins, and I've ungrouped them. First he talks about sexual sin, then he talks about covetousness. In the second um, cycle of the, the vice lists, he, he talks about anger and hatred, and then he talks about sins of the tongue, and then lastly there's racism. And we're going to look at each of those five things in the future and, and kind of develop all of these ideas of the, the putting to death and the putting off and, and so forth um, in more detail. That's why I'm not really going into detail about them right now, but... Those things suit the old man. They still struggled with many of the same old sins. And now it was time, Paul says, to get rid of them. Now it was time to take off the old, to put on the new. When I got married, as I've said before, one of the things that happened is I got a new wardrobe. It was not instantaneous. It was progressive, however. You see, because the old clothes did not suit the new man, shall we say. 
And so they were taken off, thrown away, little by little, and new clothes came in, so that I am the dapper man you see now. <laughs> as, a, as opposed to the slovenly man you would have seen then. <laughs> okay? It's that idea. You've got a new status. Don't, don't, no, no, aim. You don't need to share these things. It may just be you, Stephanie, but she does not need to share these things. Honor your husband. I'll talk enough about my sin and stuff, okay? I had a new status, and I had to get clothes that sort of fit that status. Not the clothes of a lazy bachelor, but the clothes of a respectable man, shall we say. Um, So that's just a picture, sort of, of that. I needed a new wardrobe. Um, They had put off the old man, but continued to live like the old man in Adam. And the question is, do you? Do we? And the answer, of course, is yes. And that needs to change for all of us. Since we have put off the old man in conversion, let's put off his works in practice. Thirdly, hopefully short, you know, shorter than the other two, alive as a new man in Christ, put on what belongs to him. So sanctification is not just getting rid of the bad stuff. You also have to, are intended to grow in godliness, the good stuff. And so he says, you have put on the new self. Just like you put off the old self in the past, in the past you put on the new self, the new identity, the new man. You are in Christ. And so now you need to begin to act like you're in Christ, he says. And so this, this idea is that of putting clothes on. So not only do we take old stuff off, but we put new on. Jesus does not say, just take them off and stand there naked. He says, put on the new stuff. You know, when, when we adopted um, Eli, the old clothes went in the trash and new clothes went on them. You know, we didn't just say, oh, we don't like these clothes anymore. They don't fit. They're, they're, they, you know, they're ratty. Throw them away. We said, and here, here are new clothes for you to cover you, to bring you glory. And so Christ says, I'm, I'm going to take this bad stuff away, but I'm also going to give you good stuff, new stuff. We are not to be clothed in any old thing, but actually with Christ, who is our righteousness. We see this in two parallel passages to this. First, in Romans 13, part of the passage that converted Augustine in that garden when he decided to take up and read the Bible to the chanting of the children next door. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You still have the desires, but he says, don't gratify them. Put on Christ. This seems almost in conflict with Galatians 3, verse 27, where he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
And this, this I believe, is similar to the reality that we see with regarding to the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've got, if you're, if you're a Christian, the Spirit dwells in you. Bottom line. But what Paul will say in other places is be filled with the Spirit, or in other words, be living in submission and dependence upon the Spirit. Okay? You already have the Spirit, but now depend on Him. It's sim- this is similar to that. You've already put Christ on, now depend on Him. Okay? Consciously act because you know because you have put on Christ. Okay, so it's not like they hadn't, but they needed to begin to integrate that reality into their daily experience in the in the present. And we aren't perfect. Paul says you're being renewed. This this new man is being renewed. Because it is a process that God is at work. There's no instantaneous sanctification until you die or Jesus returns. Before then, it's all progressive and painfully slow at times. This inner renewal takes place precisely again in our union with Christ, but it results in outward change. What's inside begins to work its way outside. Okay? Our, in other words, our new identity begins to take root and it manifests itself in this new lifestyle. I've moved across country twice, um, but I've never immigrated from one country to, an, to another. Some of you have. Um, and when your citizenship changes, your identity changes. And slowly you begin to take on the characteristics of someone in your new country. Uh, Lucette still speaks French, right? But you don't go around speaking French. Okay? There were things that, um, that were common everyday practice, I'm sure, for her in France, but she learned a new way of doing things, right, when you came to America. Okay? So we, we have moved from the dominion of darkness, as Paul says in chapter 1, and now we're in the, the kingdom of light, and that's a, that's a change in citizenship. And so there's a new lifestyle that's associated with that. It's not just we get a green card and it's all good. Now we, we start to live like it. We take on the characteristics and the culture of the heavenly kingdom. Sinclair Ferguson says that failure to deal with the presence of sin can often be traced back to spiritual amnesia, forgetting our new, true, real identity. He says that we often forget who we are in Christ, and so we forget how we're to live in Christ and we act like we're, st- we're back in Adam. Spiritual amnesia. That a lot of the time we suffer from this. And Paul wants to bring this new identity back into the forefront of our minds for us. Um, I need to go faster. 
This, is, this new self is being renewed, as we said, ongoing process, but it's also being renewed particularly in knowledge after the image of its creator. And this is telling us two very important things that we have to take note of. One, that knowledge, knowledge of God and knowledge of salvation is essential to our spiritual transformation. You are not accidentally going to fall into holiness. It doesn't happen. Okay? You're not going to wake up one day, uh, you know, and, you know, it's just, it's just like, you know, I want, I'd love to drop 20 pounds. And the only way I'm going to do that by, by staying in bed is if I have the flu for about three weeks. Don't want that. Okay? You know, I have to do something. I'm not going to accidentally fall into weight loss. All right? So that I can go back to my old pants, not the ones that Amy threw away, but, you know. <laughs> the new ones that she bought that don't fit anymore. Okay? I'm not going to accidentally fall into weight loss, and none of us will accidentally fall into holiness. It comes with knowledge. And so your renewal will not take place apart from regular Bible study, reading, and prayer. Not going to happen. Okay? And part of what I mean by that in particular is, and and Paul Tripp talks about this in his latest book, um, Dangerous Calling, is when you get to these things like these sin lists, instead of just quickly going to the end, you're stopping and you're going, which of these do I do? And being honest and saying, Jesus, help me. And then getting to the, the virtue lists. We're going to get to some of those you know, later on in, this, in the spring. And again, stopping and saying, which of these do I do? Which of these do I lack? Jesus, work that into me. Knowledge is a very important thing. And when you see those places that talk about your new identity, you've got to remember those things and pray about them. So read the Scriptures with a very prayerful attitude that reflects not just what the Bible says, but who you are and who God wants you to be. And praying that God would be doing that. Um, and this is part of what it, part of what I think it does mean that Titus two passage I referred to earlier, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, training us to renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God trains us. Did you catch that? In other words, it's not an automatic thing that we know. We must learn it. We must learn it from Him. We learn it from the grace of God. He mercifully teaches us. Second thing to learn from that phrase in knowledge after the image of its Creator is that the goal is nothing less than the divine image. Nothing less than the Father conforming you to the likeness of Christ in righteousness. And until you've gotten there, you haven't arrived, which means none of us have arrived. We're all in process. 
As Paul Tripp says, we're all in the middle of our sanctification. Some of you might be, you know, at the beginning of your sanctification, but you're still in the middle of it. And some of us are kind of, you know, more over here, as we've talked about last week. But we're all still in the middle of our sanctification. I don't know about you, but, you know, when we moved from Florida to uh, Arizona, I didn't want to stay in the middle of that trip. Especially Fort Stockton. West Texas. Lord, don't send me to West Texas. Okay? San Antonio East. All right. Okay? We don't want to stay in the middle. You get get back in and you keep driving. It's basically the idea. Okay? The image of God was distorted by sin, but God is at work to restore it to glory. I don't work on cars. Some of you might, but we've all seen someone who buys a heap and slowly begins to restore its beauty, pulling the dents, getting rid of the rust, putting on new paint, fixing the parts of the engine that don't work anymore. And so something that was relatively worthless becomes valuable again. That's us. We were on the junk heap because of our sin. And He's restoring us into the likeness of His Son with glory. And it takes time. It takes patience on our part. And it will be painful at times. Putting something near and dear to you like your sin to death is painful. But it's like going to the doctor painful. It has to happen for us to be made well. So, too long. We continue to sin precisely because we do have indwelling sin or a sinful nature. And there's a part of us that is still attracted to sin. As the old hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. There's still that in us. But Jesus didn't just die for our sin. Jesus wants to put its practice to death in your life. And He gives us the resources we need in our union with Him. We are dead to sin. We are dead to the world. We are alive to God. We have the fullness of Christ. We have the indwelling Spirit. Yet we are to actively participate in His kingly work of putting our sin to death. And so I ask you to actively engage your sin as an enemy, which it is. It's an intruder in your house. Put it to death. Well, we're going to unpack this more in the weeks to come. So be patient. Let's pray. Father, I know that the, this part of this letter is hard doesn't always sound encouraging because it reminds us of how far we still have to go. Help us not to hear condemnation. Help us to hear encouragement. Help us to to hear what You have done for us. Help us to remember all You have given us. 
Help us to remember that you are for us because of Christ. And that you're, you're kind of pushing us along and pulling us along. Um, you're not saying this to make us feel bad. You're not saying this to cast us down, but to lift us up, to help us move forward. And so may we receive it in the spirit in which it is intended by you, by Paul, and hopefully by me. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.